Well, good morning, church, and happy Father's Day to you men. Uh, we love you. We care for you. We need you. Uh, the church and the kingdom of God need you engaged, and we are glad you're here. Um, in light of the subject matter this morning of self-control, uh, I thought that song represented my own heart this week. Uh, great is his faithfulness to me. So I had, I was all in my feelings over there. Now y'all want me to preach. Um, this is our third, uh, third week uh, in our wisdom series called The Way of Wisdom. Monty gave an overview of wisdom. Last week, Rob talked about the wisdom of work. And this morning, we get to talk about self-control. Speaking of self-control, Professor Walter Michel, an Ivy League prof, known to the world about his or known to the world about his experiments in the area of self-control. In around 1960, he decided to see how five-year-olds would respond to what he called the marshmallow experiment. He told these five-year-olds. Here's one marshmallow, you can choose and have that now, or if you wait 15 minutes, you can have two marshmallows. Well, you know what happened. The vast majority of those five-year-olds, just like I would have done, I would have done it at 59. <laughs> I'm getting me a mellow now. And then, obviously, a handful of five-year-olds waited and took two. And as they did, they did things like they tried to sleep, put their head on their desk, close their eyes to push through the struggle. <laughs> Prof. Michelle followed these kids for the next 30 years. He went on to have these kids who chose two marshmallows to wait and have self-controlled, had higher SAT scores, were thinner, earn more advanced degrees, use less drugs, and cope better with stress and anxiety, and also had more wealth. His conclusion, though, was, encur was encouraging and also interesting. For you nervous parents out there who are thinking, oh, no, <laughs> I am in big trouble. He literally said, whether you ate the marshmallow, the one marshmallow or the two, at age five, it's not your destiny. You can be taught. You can learn to have self-control. I said amen to that, right? It's not destiny. Now, I not only agree with that, but I know it's true, and here's why. I grew up in a home that was 100% no self-control and therefore 100% indulgence over the top in every area you can imagine, from alcohol to two hyper, over-the-top, raging parents, big, loud, intense, verbal, and sometimes physical, fighting like wild dogs. The verbal assaults were filled with the most vile, explicitives. That's not the right word. You know what I'm talking about. Thank you. Directed personally at you or me and my brother and each other. Food addicts, two packs of cigarettes a day, both died of lung cancer, always focused on the external of what you look like 
and what you wore and what people thought of you, they often spent more than they made. And if you felt it or thought it, you did it and said it. It was never woe, and it was always go. And you know what? I'm thankful none of that ever affected me. <laughs> Y'all know that's a lie. And because of that, I have been on this long, hard journey to learn what all Christ followers have to learn, what it means to live a life characterized by self-control. Now, in some ways, it's shocking, shocking in the sense that when I came to Christ at 19 years old as a college football player in the midst of Animal House, the dorm, from that point through the rest of college, and, and obviously beyond, but I never drank again. I never did drugs again. I never fought again. I never went to bars again. And I never had physical intimacy again until I was married. So, shocking in this sense, I, I, at that time, I did not feel like I was depriving myself of something. It felt like because the Holy Spirit had come to indwell in me, and I had this sense of the love of God for me, I was living for something bigger and better than those things that I stopped. But the shocking part was what an immature, foolish young man I was because even though I had changed some of those exterior behaviors, which were huge first steps, right? What I found as I got into marriage is that my lust didn't stop. My getting hurt and responding or reacting to that in anger didn't stop. The fear, the hurt, and the reactions all begin to show me that I had very little self-control and therefore was very immature because maturity and self-control go hand in hand. Self-control from the heart under the power of the Spirit is a key, maybe the key quality to be a mature Christ follower. Now, I want you to know this, whether you admit it or not, the struggle for self-control is universal. Can we all just say amen? Because all I got to do is talk to your spouse or one of your co-workers or friends, and they're going to like, yeah, that dude lost his mind last week. But I want you to know, I want you to be encouraged this morning. I want you to walk away with great biblical certain hope that you can change. We're in good company, folks. Listen to the Apostle Paul, and it comes from the message of Romans 7. He says, yes, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. You ever been there? Can you identify with the Apostle Paul? <laughs> oh, we know Paul was a raging wild man before Christ, and he did not change overnight. 
Richard Sibes, the great Puritan theologian, put it this way, for whatever a person is controlled by, to that he is enslaved. So men and women, let us learn together this morning. <clears throat> and in doing so, I wanted to give, a, in some ways, a contrast, if you can imagine, for self-control and indulgence. And I, I, I wrote more than I usually do for definitions, but I wanted you to be able to take home this really working semi-comprehensive definition of self-control. The Greek word is temperance or sober-minded. Is there synonyms there? And here's how I defined it based on my thoughts and a lot of thoughts I read this week. The virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites and tongue, the ability or power to rule or regulate one's personal life so that we are neither driven nor dominated by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or the pride of life. The essence of such regulation is the ability to delay or refuse an impulse as we instead live out biblical truth and values. In essence, it is command, any command for obedience to God or conduct that is in keeping with biblical Christianity or godliness is a call for inward controls by the grace and provision of God found for us in Christ. And in some ways, that's a vision for Christ-like maturity. Now, the Proverbs, as we are teaching through that, has a lot to say. And it continues to paint this picture, if you would, of self-control. It says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. The message makes it a little more earthy. It says, a person without self-control is like a house with its doors and windows knocked out. So when I read that, I thought, what does it look like? What does it look like to have no self-control, no windows and doors and walls in your home? And I thought Solomon defined it for us in Ecclesiastes 2.10. At the end of his life, with great regret, as he looked back on his life, he defined for us the epitome, if you would, the, the, the preeminent definition of indulgence. Whatever my eyes desired, he said, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And it's 700 concubines and Navy ships. I mean, you, you go read. He told the truth about himself. Now, I want us to listen for a minute, if you would, about what the Proverbs, this, this book of wisdom, how it sort of talks about self-control and indulgence. Concerning anger, rage, and the tongue, 20, Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds back. How about, about lust and porn and sex outside of God's design, Proverbs 9, 17 through 18. The foolish woman is loud and seductive, so whoever is simple-minded, she says to him, come to me. And to him who lacks sense, she says, come. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. How about, about food and alcohol? Certainly, indulgence can be had there. 
23, 20 through 21. Do not among drunk, do not be among drunkards or among the gluttony, gluttonous eaters, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is a fool. How about emotional blow-ups and emotional reactions? Certainly no one here struggles, but for those who are online, maybe. <laughs> Proverbs 14, 16. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. How about being easily offended? Proverbs 12, 16. Because when you're easily offended, you usually lose self-control. Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an offense. How about concerning money and power? Proverbs 23, 4. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. And then lastly, greed. And, and I'll put this out here to help the men out this morning. Shopping. That was for you, ladies. Free. Proverbs 28, 22. The stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. Folks, the Proverbs speak to this because humans' natural propensity is to live a life of indulgence if they can. Our culture, our world is an indulgent cult culture. Consumption, abundance, excess is everywhere. Words like self-control and moderation are nearly curse words in this world that we live in. And we should have learned from Solomon's foolishness that he himself came to realize it's all vanity. Vanities of vanities, like a breath on a cold morning. You see it, and one second later, you don't. All of that pleasure and indulgence always promises high. And always delivers low. Howard Hughes, one of the richest men in all time, was asked, Howard, how much money is enough? And his answer floored the reporter. He said, just a little bit, what, more. It would have been far better to pray with the wise sage Agur in Proverbs 30 when he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The world says to us, No inhibitions in sex, anger, rage, gossip, alcohol, drugs, greed. Your words, lying, and it destroys not only the life of those who live that way, but it destroys those who are around them. Matter of fact, just a couple days ago, it was very sad, and just, just, it's just sad. I mean, it's heartbreaking. The L.A. Dodgers brought what they called the Sisters of Indulgence to their stadium, these are nuns. These are people dressed up like nuns, sort of as a drag queen, and brought them there to honor them before the entire stadium. And our world applauds at that. 
even as they mock the crucifixion of Christ openly in their drama performances. Now, even though that's true, the reality is you and I have areas of self-control that need to change. And I want to ask this question on the front end, and hopefully we can help you before we get through the sermon. Are you aware of the area or areas that you need to change concerning self-control? Here's another perspective. That's why one of the reasons this sermon was so hard this week, because it, it comes from every different angle, right? Like, it's different for everyone. It's complex. But many of the areas that I listed above are not forbidden. Sex is not. Food is not. Certainly communication with our tongues are not. Our emotions aren't forbidden. Money, even alcohol. These are good things, but even good things can become bad things in the hands of sinful people who have no self-control. Tim Keller puts it this way. He said, idols are good things that have become ultimate things, and that's a bad thing. So how is it that we can gain self-control to enjoy the good things without them becoming bad things? How is it that we obey Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 10 where he says, so whether you drink or eat and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God wants to give us pleasures, but as he does, he wants us to remember that sin is always near at hand, so we must respond to that sin with self-control, lest we become what we hate and never mature in Christ. Swindoll puts it beautifully. He says, 10% of what happens to you, 10% 10, 10 of life is what happens to you, and 90% of life is how you respond to it. Never been a truer quote around self-control. So let's jump in this morning. As I share some things with you, I could have shared more, but I tried to focus it down on some things that have really helped me over the years. Godly enjoyment versus sinful indulgence. The first one there is from the inside out. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. One of the most famous, one I've heard Monty quote maybe more than any proverb. One of the most famous proverbs speaks truth here. Leaning on your own understanding is called trusting in your flesh to beat your self-control. Trusting in your willpower to white-knuckle self-control. It never has worked, and it won't ever work. As G.K. Chesterton said, Samson strangled a lion, yet he could not strangle his own lust. Yeah, he was strong in the flesh, but he abandoned the Holy Spirit work in him, the inward work of the Spirit in him. The distortion of our desires comes from within. Scripture talks often about indwelling sin, and certainly it must be subdued. And one way we do this, or we try to do this, is asceticism, or self-denial, or even legalism. The problem is these do not keep our appetites under control. Can somebody say amen? It's like when somebody says, don't look at that red dot on that person's forehead. What do you do? 
at the end of the day, it is fleshly. And fleshly power has no power to overcome the desires of the flesh. And really what it does, asceticism or self-denial or, self, or, or uh, white knuckling, really what it does, it feeds our pride. Look, I didn't do it. And then it makes us more self-indulgent in the long run. I think Augustine helps us here. Certainly a man who struggled with self-control. If you read some things about Augustine, he said, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing and try desperately to fulfill it without God. As I mentioned, self-control is not about depriving yourself or some desire that you have, but it is paying close attention to the internal desire that you have. We all have internal desires, right? And realizing via years of transforming and training your mind and heart with God's truth that though you may have a desire to pick up that bottle of alcohol or whatever it is that you want to indulge in, what you're really reaching for, what you're really desiring is relationship. What you're really desiring is connection with God, yourself, and others. When I realize that, something happens in me. I'm aware of something going inside of me. I need something, and it's not that thing that I'm indulging in. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, if you uproot an idol in your life and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back or be replaced. <laughs> so you desire to sin, and over time, you can recognize that what you really need is the truth that your life matters to God in Christ, and your life matters to others. And because of that, you are living for something bigger and better than your own desires. And in the midst of that, what Satan does, he, he, he always, in some ways, lies to us. That's all he can do. But he offers this instant relief for our desires. And we're so easily enticed by these shortcuts to real joy. But God knows that spiritual growth and change takes time. And in my own experience, it often happens over time so slowly, layer by layer, that you look back and you sort of go, I know I'm not the same person, but how did it happen? <laughs> it, it's that daily, and it's that minute. Three crucial ingredients. Henry Cloud's book that I highly recommend, Changes at Hill, says there's three ingredients to growth and change, grace, truth, and time. And there's no doubt in this area we need all of them. Grace, God's grace is relational. God's truth leads us to what is real. And time is just not God giving us some space so we can continue to sin. Time is not a luxury. It is a necessity. So do not be discouraged when it's slow. Keep going. Layer by layer. So, from the inside out. Secondly, a search for significance. Proverbs tells us the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. 
but a man of understanding will draw it out. Who are you, the Proverbs is alluding to? And why are you here? It is the ultimate question for human beings. What is my purpose? And it can be, in some ways, uh, drilled down to say significance. Humans are obsessed with their own significance. Joseph Stoll, the former president of Wheaton College, said, We are built for significance, but our problem is not that we search for it, but that we search for it in all the wrong places. This obsession plays its way out in our drive for what? Position, power, praise, and possessions. But like the prophet Jeremiah say, says, they're broken cisterns that hold no water. They never satisfy our cravings for significance. And if we look quickly around to those in our world who, who have overindulgence, we can tell it doesn't satisfy. They get divorces. They blow their lives up, right? Like they have all that we're driving for. Michael Jordan is the key example of that. I love Michael Jordan. But at 50, ESPN had a long article on him. Maybe it took 40 minutes to read. And he got totally honest. I have it all. He's a miserable, miserable man. And this obsession forms a tremendous obstacle to self-control and the enjoyment of God. Let me give a couple examples here. Just as an obsession with food leads to gluttony, an obsession with significance leads to indulgence and selfishness. When our significance is threatened, what do we do? We react. We react like lip. Uh, reptiles do to the cold or heat. They just react with no self-control because we want to maintain our significance. We want to maintain and protect it. This obsession for significance makes us vulnerable to a lack of self-control with our tongue. When we feel threatened, what do we do? We gossip, we slander, we boast, we lie. The significance addiction also makes us vulnerable to sexual unfaithfulness, not because we are burning red hot with lust, but because for the first time in a long time, somebody comes along and treats us and talks to us as if we are what? Significant. We violate being good stewards of our money and accumulate Debt because it enhances our status on the social scene. We violate our integrity at work when we lie about our resume because we want to be seen as significant. I'll never forget uh, my first year as the chaplain of the Cincinnati Reds and Bengals. I got a call uh, from a guy who was the president of a college. And he had done a couple chapels over the last 10 years or so for the Reds, for the guy that I was taking his place. And he wanted to meet me. I said, sure. So I'm new. I drive to the campus. He brings me in this beautiful, massive office. And I'm like, man, I ain't never met with the, the presidents of the colleges I went to want to throw me out. This guy wants to meet with me, right? And as I sat down, I will never forget, displayed on his desk were business cards. You've seen those little holders. 
And on the business card, it had his name, had a Cincinnati Reds emblem, and it says chaplain to the Cincinnati Reds. I said, oh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe he's the guy. He wasn't the guy. He had put those out there for something. I didn't say anything, but I thought something's going on there where he needs to be seen as the chaplain of the Reds when all he's done is a chapel or two. In good faith, I could not ask him to do another chapel. He was getting something from that. But that's how we can do it sometimes. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says this, Because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God. And the more that drills down into your heart, the better and more self-control you will have. Your significance has already been declared <laughs> in Christ. And it's not because of how you have performed. It is because of his glorious grace. Thirdly, the gift of feelings. The gift of feelings. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And let me share with you, at 27, when I first heard anything about feelings, meet with Dr. Gary Sweeten, in my mind and heart, I said, that's hogwash. It's psychobabble. I personified Proverbs 18.2. Turn over your sheets a minute. This is from Phil Herndon's workbook he put together called The Voice of the Heart. It's called a chart called The Gift of Feelings. And I want to, I want to, I want to, press us here a minute. Our feelings are a gift from God, and listen to me, they are to be gauges for us to tell us what's going on inside of us, but they are not to be guides for us to follow. Gauges to know what's going on inside of us, but they're not guides for us to follow. When Ephesians 6 tells us that we just preached through that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, you better believe that part of how that plays out is Satan trying to use our emotions against us. There's eight emotions here, but I think there's a ninth emotion, and it's called cray-cray, right? <laughs> our feelings are meant to report to us, not dictate to us. Our twisted and unawareness of our emotions make us react instead of respond to temptation and sin. Let me just be totally clear and give you an example. So, it is not new news that I'm a recovering rageaholic. And what would happen to me that I know now is that I would feel fear and immediately would move. If you can see to the left there, I don't know, let's see, to my left, you see, yeah, the impairment side, I would immediately move to control and rage. And over the years, as I grew in my ability to say, man, what am I feeling? I would feel fear, which would immediately have caution lights going off and move me to faith and wisdom and caution and carefulness, knowing 
I may even have to remove myself from the conversation or the room to process my feelings because I know what's going on. And I know when I'm feeling fear where I can tend to go. It can be embarrassing at times to say, can you give me a few minutes? But it's not as embarrassing as me blowing my mind and doing what Paul said in Romans 7, doing things that I despise. The maddening thing is I justified my rage because it was so much milder than what I experienced from my parents. <laughs> like, it was just totally different. But rage, for sure. Hurtful, for sure. I've grown so much in my ability to understand what I am feeling, tell the truth about it. I feel fear, which immediately says, you better be careful. You better lean into the Lord with trust, and you better be cautious and wise. I do know this, paying attention, paying attention to my internal world of feelings certainly would have saved me from a lot of hard things. You know how it works. Someone hurts you. There's hurt on your sheet. Natural, no self-control. What do you do? You move to resentment, and if it continues, you actually move to revenge. You think in your mind, they hurt me, I will hurt them back. And there goes our self-control. So the gift of feelings, a huge gift for us. Fourthly, BFF time. Best friend forever time. The Proverbs tell us a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. As I mentioned earlier, every time we move in a direction of a lack of self-control, we are reacting not responding, but if we are in touch with our feelings and our internal world in a healthy way, we realize what we really want, as I said, is we need relationship, which leads us to one of the greatest gifts given to God's people, the body of Christ. This is how it works. I feel, I need, and I call a friend. <laughs> Uh, that is a normal life of a Christ follower. I feel, I need, I call a friend. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, friendship is born at that moment when one man says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. The grace of that quote. But you don't know that you're not the only one until you call a friend. There is great power to fight temptation when you are in the fight with another. Matter of fact, in the last two weeks, I reached out to someone to help me. And I had someone reach out to me to help them. The natural flow of that is what Christ's followers do. And I love Proverbs 17, 7. Our friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. <laughs> Amen. And lastly, in this little category, we fight for superior pleasure. Proverbs tell us, 1028 tells us, the hope of the righteous brings joy. Biblical hope is always a certainty. 
By now, we have come to the conclusion, obviously, as we work through this, that the way of self-control for the Christ follower is not like the Nike campaign, just say no. And the problem is, it's with the word just, because we say no in a different way, in a certain way. We say no by faith in the superior power and pleasure of Christ, and in doing so, when change occurs, because it will, Christ gets the glory. reason is self-control is a gift from God, his work in us. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And Paul paints this picture for us of this fight for superior pleasure that we're in. He says, for this I toll, struggling or agonizing is really the word, with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. The Proverbs put it this way, 2131, the horse is made ready for battle. That's our job as humans, but the victory belongs who? To the Lord. We have a certain hope that we know that God's spirit is at work in you if you know Christ. God's spirit is at work in me if I know Christ and he's producing in us. He's doing all he can to make us into the image of Christ, as we said a thousand times from here, in a primary area that has taken down more godly men and women than any other area comprehensively that I could think of was a lack of what? Self-control. And in that, it's a painful fight, but it's a fight that's worth it. And we are to join him in that fight. There it is, for a lifetime. We say at fellowship, it's a long obedience in the what? Same direction. As we wrap up this morning, I want to motivate you to really allow the world, the word, or the Lord to help you in this area of self-control. Such a gift, a body of Christ, walking in self-control and in unity is a gift to each other and to a world needing the Lord Jesus. Here's the ultimate motivation in my mind. Titus 2, 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and here it is, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul here says it is grace, the grace of God that motivates us to reject godless ways and worldly desires, and it positively motivates us to live godly eyes in this present age as we wait for his return. Now you say, well, Jeff, that's from Titus. We're in Proverbs. Yes, but, but, but here's what Paul Tripp, Dr. Paul Tripp, who I love. You want to read something about Paul Tripp? Read it. Here's how he describes the grace of God, or he's how he describes the Proverbs. The Proverbs brims with God's grace. Yes, because every warning of the Proverbs is a what? Grace. Every morsel of understanding that's imparted is a grace. Every practical guidance is a grace. Every moral encouragement is a grace. Every proverb tells us that our God is a God of sweet and faithful and never 
life-changing grace. The more the grace of God drills down to the depths of your soul, the more you will grow and change, and self-control will also grow and change. The so what this morning is simple. I have no doubts whatsoever that the vast majority of you are, are aware of areas in your life, area or areas, that need to grow and change in the area of self-control. Can I trust that? Okay. If you're not sure, ask your spouse. They know. Jenna knew before I knew. Ask a BFF. What steps do you need to take? There's many mentioned this morning and many others to address these areas that God may do in you what you never thought might be possible. That you no longer, in a sense, say, you know, that's just the way I am. That doesn't work in biblical Christianity. And thank God it doesn't, right? Take a minute to ask that question. today. Uh, Lord, I'm encouraged that uh, you loved me even while knowing that before I ever turned to you. I'm thankful. Lord, would you uh, bring about a change in our lives? Would you help us to see the beauty of Christ goodness of our relationship with him as a much better alternative to the empty counterfeits of this world. We thank you for that. And pray that you would strengthen us, sustain us, help us to persevere in the process until you bring us home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.